Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I've got Chris Nolte coming on the show today from Propel. You might recognize that name if you've been looking around at different e-bikes, different websites, or more so even different content. He is also another e-bike shop owner and also YouTuber. So that's pretty exciting to have somebody else doing this as well on the episode. Really interested to see where this goes. He met up with Jessica at one of the events in Arizona, and I'm thankful that she was able to get us connected and get this started. So let's jump right into it and hear again from Chris Nolte with Propel. Well, thank you, Chris, for being on the podcast and taking time out of your day to do this. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me, and thanks, uh, Jessica, for connecting us. It's pretty cool. And as you said, there's there's not too many people that do what we do, so it's definitely cool to, to connect with others, for sure. I've watched some of your videos, not all of them, but I have seen some of them, uh, and I feel like you take a similar approach sometimes, if I can say that, and if, if you feel like that's incorrect, feel free to correct me. <laughs> I totally agree. I totally, we're, we're both just trying to educate people, right? Like, you're not, like, just trying to hop goods on there, but actually trying to like help people understand this, you know, strange new world, right? Yeah. Those are the videos of yours that I've watched that were like an interesting e-bike topic. And it didn't really say anything that I can recall about your shop or your specific bikes, but there was something interesting about e-bikes. I think I watched some of the things about, uh, you know, certain laws and regulations and how it was being difficult for certain businesses. And, and you've had some f- less than fun experiences that with that, I should say? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I got started in this thing in 2011 uh, in New York, where back in those days, the laws for electric bikes were definitely unfavorable. And uh, I ended up getting a $25,000 fine from the city uh, of New York. Fortunately, I called the mayor's office, uh, actually the mayor's office of Veterans Affairs. I'm a, a disabled vet. And I said, hey, I just opened this shop. I got a $25,000 fine, and uh, they called me the next day, and they said, hey, uh, that thing, it, it, it just went away. It's not, it doesn't exist anymore. So, <laughs> sometimes how those things work uh, in New York, you got you to gotta cut through the, the nonsense. You know? Now, I think I know some of the details because I, I'm pretty sure I've watched that, but for those listening, what was the fine for? Because it was e-bike or electric bike specific, wasn't it? Yeah, so there's a lot of laws that exist for electric bikes that were not really intended to be electric bike laws, but they just happen to fall into this weird classification of kind of a motorized scooter, uh, for lack of a better definition. I mean, and and that's essentially the case in New York. I mean, they had a law from the early 2000s that basically classified anything that can be operated without human assistance as a motorized scooter and basically if you can't register it as in it doesn't have a title and a VIN number it's illegal to operate and so most electric bikes kind of fit in this classification uh, particularly ones with a throttle I kind of found this loophole focusing on bikes with pedal assist and I said well hey uh, these they they require human assistance and that was the the stance that I was taking and I kind of bet the farm on it and yeah I got a ticket anyway uh, well I got a fine anyway you know, the unfortunate thing is that a lot of times people are not so familiar with the law, even the ones that are tasked with enforcing it. But ends up, they came back a year later, uh, gave me another one. I decided to not take the same route and actually went back. I actually went to court 
And I beat the case. So I helped to set kind of a legal precedent in, in New York that initially pedalist bikes were legal. And later, uh, throttle activated bikes became legal as well. Uh, but that was uh, through a different process, actually through, through the budget at, on the state level. Got it. Well, awesome. Well, thank you, because I'm sure that was a long, long process and a lot of headaches to go to court. I can only imagine. Unfortunately, in some ways, I can imagine all too well, but <laughs> different subjects. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That Now, since, have they just adjusted the, the law to say that e-bikes are allowed? Have they adopted like a class one, two, three type law like other states? What are What are they doing in New York now? Well, crazy thing is, actually, uh, they decided to take a, a bit of a different stance. I mean, class one is as what most other people do, and, and 20 miles an hour pedal assist. Class two is 20 miles an hour throttle activated, as it is in many other places. But class three, however, is quite unique in New York specifically, and it's 25 miles an hour throttle. So they kind of switched up the standard class three definition, which is 28 miles an hour pedal assist. What they were trying to do, it seems at the time, was try to integrate common uh, bikes that were being used for delivery, which often go beyond the, the class two definition of 20 miles an hour throttle. Yeah, so it's kind of a bit of a unique spot there. And there's a few companies in particular that I guess we're, we're kind of catering to that market and they seem to have been pretty successful in it. But yeah, the law is, is definitely a bit unique in New York. I think there's still some push to try and get it more in line with the rest of the states, just so it's all kind of uniform. But uh, a lot of challenges and pushback from the community that uses the bikes for delivery. Interesting. What well, funny enough that it almost makes more sense because <laughs> the the normal class one, two, and three people always get confused because they're like, well, why does the middle class have a throttle, but the other two don't? How come this one can go faster? It, it is a little hard to, to grasp, and, and I feel like it definitely could have been simpler. And I keep asking people, uh, maybe you've asked the same question, and if you know the answer, I'd love to hear it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm skeptical that anyone really knows. Where did these three classes even come from in the first place? Who came up with these numbers? And uh, so far, I have, I have yet to discover the reason behind it. So interesting that you, New York has gone with something just all on their own. I am somewhat familiar with uh, where the three-class system came up with. I mean, it was largely BPSA, which most recently has merged with People for Bikes, which is kind of the national bike advocacy group. But Basically, from my side, I've been forced into getting very involved with these legal things and even like lobbying and that sort of stuff. I used to go up to the Capitol all the time. I met with the mayor, the governor's office, all that sort of stuff for years. You learn is that there's often a very small number of people, sometimes even just one person that can really hold things up. And sometimes it's just based on their own personal preference or opinion, not necessarily representing their constituents. But the three-class system seems like it was originally defined with the BPSA and say, okay, well, we have these throttle-activated bikes, the pedal-assist bikes, and then there's these class three bikes, which were already being created in Europe and in line with the special speed pedelec, and they wanted to have something that could account for those because they were already being offered in the U.S., but I, I know a lot of people are challenged by the standard three-class system. I think a lot of the effort to introduce the system in the way that it was was really to create something that 
the land manager specifically around, you know, mountain bike trails and that sort of stuff had something that they would find to be acceptable. And it seems to be working in a lot of ways, right? I mean, access for trails is becoming greater and greater over time. Yeah, I've always said that I'm I'm all for the the class system for e-bikes that does exist because it gave us a starting point because without it, I feel like you had more of the situations where you had in New York where one person in one one city or one county or or somewhere says e-bikes aren't allowed here or there and they start making their own rules and then it gets really confusing from place to place. So, can be one thing I, I don't know if you've been so I just saw something in the news recently that I think it's like Ocean, somewhere down by San Diego in California. That <laughs> Southern California has been known for doing things like this lately, over, or the last few years, it seems like. They just outlawed e-bikes on the, on the beach bed altogether, or they're, or they're working on it or something like that. That's what can be challenging with these, like the, the industry calls e-bikes of like out of class where like if it doesn't meet these classifications and i think uh the challenge is a small number of people could potentially have a great impact on the industry overall and uh you know it's definitely a concern and it's something that we got to be mindful of because a lot of us did fight very hard to open up the opportunities and it's, it's challenging and it could get squashed by a small number now do you still have a bike shop in new york yeah, I actually have a couple. I have one in Brooklyn, New York. I have another in Long Beach, California. And I have a, uh, like a distribution center that I'm setting up with a showroom in, in uh, Delaware, actually. Oh, okay. Wilmington, Delaware. Yeah. But we do uh, a lot of our businesses online, but we, we do have a couple of shops. Got it. Yeah. So you're way different on two different coasts. <laughs> That's pretty interesting uh, to be spread that far apart. But yeah, I get that question all the time. People are, oh, you're going to open up something on the East Coast? I'm like, well, no, not really. <laughs> not for me anyway. Not at this point in time, but uh, I applaud you for, for doing that. Yeah, I mean, I totally respect that. I mean, the reality is from my side, I did that in part because of the law. It's interesting that you you know brought up the law as, a, as the first point. And it definitely had a major impact on my life and the choices I've made with my business. And, mm -hmm. and I in part opened the shop in California. Oddly enough, I opened it 2018. When I signed the lease in California, a month later, the law changed in our favor for electric bikes. Oh, wow. I mean, I had already set this legal precedent, but I'm glad I did it. And, you know, and things have been going well out in California. And as you know, many companies are out in California and it's been great to connect and network and, you know, have a place that the weather is kind of already always pretty favorable, uh, <laughs> at least in Southern California. I hear you got some snow up there right now. huh? Yeah, I, I spent honestly till afternoon today. The first couple hours was shoveling by hand to get the gate open and then uh, eventually got a tractor in here. And then I spent the next several hours on a tractor moving snow around in the yards. Our weather is great if you love snowy weather and you want to you know, ride an all-wheel drive or a fat bike or something through the snow right now. It's not the sunny, warm Southern California weather people often picture when they when they think we're in California. <laughs> that's that's a different part of the state for sure. So today, unfortunately, is is kind of cold. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Right. It is, it is amazing how how big the state is, right, and the, the varying topography and climate that exists around. Yeah, you're. Uh, I'd have to go look at a map, but yeah, you're. Your two bike shops on the East Coast in different states might be closer than, uh, you know, the distance between 
Northern California where I'm at and where your Southern California shop is. It wouldn't surprise me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they definitely are. Because you're probably seven, eight-hour drive from L.A. area or something like that. Yeah, it's a good eight hours uh, depending on where in L.A. you're going because that's a big, big city down there. But, yeah, yeah, it's a good, it's a good drive. That's for sure. Now, I got to jump back a little bit now. Well, not a little bit, 10 years. You said 2011 is when you first started. What got you into e-bikes? Because you got into it fairly early. Yeah. So basically, I, I mentioned briefly, I'm a disabled vet. I served in Kuwait and Iraq 2002, 2003. While I was over there, I actually injured my back in a truck accident. I, I drove fuel trucks there. And so I returned back. I had an injured back. I was not very active for a while. I had always been into bikes, but uh, after my military service, I ended up, I was just not really active overall. And some of my friends have been going out on bike rides. And one of my friends got an electric bike and I tried it. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And what I realized in hindsight is that the psychological factors, like the psychological limitation of me just being like intimidated of getting out there on the bike. This is really one of the bigger limitations more than my physical ability. I mean, I could be a little bit sore to riding for a while and that sort of thing. But but yeah, that, that helped me get out there and I was riding with friends and, and through this process of researching, uh, I found that there's not too many other companies doing this, but in other parts of the world, it was a lot more popular than it was here. And I anticipated that eventually it would become more popular here. And you know, fortunately, that turned out to be the case. But Definitely did. Yeah, I had a lot of experience in retail. I had experience with like web marketing, e-commerce, that sort of stuff. So I figured I'll try my hand at something a little bit unconventional and start an electric bike business. And I and I guess I started maybe in some ways similar to you, like in kind of a little bit more like unconventional, not like the traditional main street bike shop sort of thing, you know. And yeah, I started with a couple of brands, and then over the year, we you know over the years we grew more and more brands and different selection and and i think part of like maybe where you and i might diverge on, in, on some level is like i end up i end up going to euro bike a lot and so a lot of the products that i sell come from europe that's i ended up going more and more in that direction and i think in part the pedal assist thing was a lot more popular over there yeah so i was like working with a lot of european brands and then, so that's kind of how that all transpired in a lot of ways yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the bike shops and how you didn't start like a traditional bike shop because I definitely went with the same approach because back in, you know, five, six years ago when I was kind of first getting started and really selling bikes and, and you were doing this years before I was, it seemed like the average bike shop had little to no interest <laughs> in e-bikes that whole business model just it wasn't working for electric bikes. Oh yeah. They left a lot of room for us. And just to be clear, so when you started, you didn't ever sell any just pedal bikes. You were just doing e-bikes from day one, correct? Am I understanding that right? That's right. Yeah. I think I started with like three or four different brands when I first started out. Several of them don't exist anymore. What year did you start, by the way? It was 2015, and it started out more like selling parts and pieces because, you know, there was a lot of DIY stuff going on. Yeah, that's right. There were some brands that were starting to sell in numbers like Rad Power and Saunders, but people kept asking for 
you know, oh, I want to do this to the bike or I want to do that to the bike. And the technical know-how or the parts just didn't exist yet or they were hard to get or hard to understand. And so that's how I got into it is I started fiddling with bikes like that just for fun. You know, I had no intention of starting an e-bike business. (laughs) That wasn't the plan. I was just doing it for something to do. And for me, it just kind of turned into a business because then people started asking me questions about, well, where did you get this? How did you do that? And it's like, oh, well, I guess I can buy more parts and bring them over here. And and that's how the, the whole cooperation from China primarily started for me is because I was dealing with a lot of Chinese made brands that people were buying in the US and getting to those manufacturers and getting parts and pieces and upgrading things. And it just kind of, it snowballed from there. Um, and, and everybody listening, I think, kind of knows how, how that went. But it was all about e-bikes from day one. I had no intention of selling pedal bikes because I was like, you know, if I want a bicycle, even though I'm in a small town, there's three or four different bike shops I can go to and I can buy a great road bike. I can buy an awesome mountain bike. I can buy whatever kind of bicycle basically I want, but none of them had electric bikes. And none of them really wanted e-bikes at that point in time either. Like you said, they kind of left the door wide open. And and now that's kind of shifting and changing a lot. I'm sure you're seeing that as well. For sure. But it's still not the same. I, I think there's still a limited number of dedicated e-bike type shops around the country. I think that's still a growing thing. And even like you said, I mean, a lot of the traditional shops are getting into it, but many of them, it's begrudgingly. I mean, the reality is, yeah, they're happy making money, but I think it's definitely a different experience working with a shop that's like actually passionate about e-bikes and believes in it and thinking more long-term and that sort of stuff. Especially having some of those experiences that you and I had, like, yeah, seeing all the different challenges working with different manufacturers and parts and i mean we did a lot of the aftermarket stuff you know early on and 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 kits and you know as you said you know kits were were a lot more popular back in the day it's kind of interesting how how that's pretty that's shifted quite a bit yeah i think more people now just are like i don't really want to build an e-bike i just want to ride one (laughs) so i still get the question every once in a while and i'm curious rather than throwing out my opinion on this when somebody asks you, because I'm sure you get it, you know, hey, I've got this bike. Do you have a kit? Should I convert it? What do you tell them? Well, okay. So there's a couple of things. I actually put like a little letter on my website. It's like why we don't sell kits anymore. The reality is so bikes are not made to put electric motors on them. And although you might be able to do it in some regard, you know, it's just for my side, like as my business grows, I have to look at liability and different things like that. I can't touch that stuff. You know, it's just it's we're we're opening ourselves up to a, a really big risk. And I've seen a lot of the challenges that can exist over time and you know, and there's certainly ways to build it up with torque arms and all this sort of stuff. But but I think that purpose built e bikes are a lot more accessible and you're a lot better suited to sell that bike and purchase something that's made for the job. Uh that that's my general stance on it. I think that there are certain instances where there might be something particularly unique, but I think you also have to be prepared for a lot more challenges and support for that bike, generally speaking. I'm sure there's going to be differing opinions on that sort of topic, but I think that's that's quite often the case. Got it. Like I said, I kind of focus on the end goal. What do you actually want to do? Do you want to tinker around and mess with something or build something? And I tell people, you know, if that's what you like to do, if you enjoy the process of making something, then I understand 
why you might want to convert something, you know, but I tell them if you just want an e-bike, then for the cost that they are these days, the quality you can get, it really just makes sense to buy one that's already done 99% of the time. There's those other 1% where it's like, oh, I need a tandem that can do this specific thing and it doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, there's a few bikes that don't quite exist the way people want them. Uh, but that's, I think, the rare exception now. I totally agree. And and the thing I often have to remember, remind myself of as well is that I'm living in cities primarily and like, you know, our shops are in cities and you're talking about like operating a tractor and this and that. It's like, you know, some people are a lot more used to being handy and, and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, the reality is a lot of times the people that uh, interact within our shop on a daily basis, they're just not in that realm so much and not prepared to do their own sort of maintenance or repairs and that sort of stuff. And so I think, yeah, like you said, you know, just kind of having something that's a little bit simpler makes more sense. And I mean, if you think about like early days of the motorcycle, right? Like Harley Davidson was strapping a motor on a bicycle. Like that's what it was. And then to think to go to Harley Davidson today and say, can you put a motor on my bike? (laughs) Yeah, no no one ever would do that. It just sounds silly. Yeah. Or even like electric cars, that sort of stuff. Like that was a common thing years ago. And it's challenging though, because you did see some big companies that were in it. And in as many companies that are still in it today. But even thinking about like Bionics, for example, like that was quite popular. And it was a big one. Yeah. I think they got kind of messed up in the GM deal. I think that's what ends up happening to them. They had a big, big project with GM and it didn't work out exactly as planned and kind of squashed them. So it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Unfortunate any time that happens to any sort of e-bike company. The reality is, I, I know I've said this many times on the podcast before, we're going to see that happen more and more because there's a new e-bike company popping up every week. And that's been happening for like the last two years, it seems like. Uh, and that's not sustainable to have that many different companies. Like it's eventually, I think at some point, things are going to consolidate to some degree and some companies are going to stick around and some unfortunately are not. We got some time before that happens, but I think it's going to happen eventually. You know, I, I love it how you said before about like how you support the products and you have like aftermarket parts and different stuff like that and working with the manufacturers. And I think that's a really big deal. And it's a big need, particularly with like certain types of bikes. And that's a really interesting, you know, or at least in the you know early days of your business model. I, I'm not sure, you know, what level you're doing at these days or not, but I think that that there will continue to be that need for sure. Because, you know, the reality is a lot of the companies, unfortunately, don't really think too long term, right? So I'm sure you see it all the time. They bring a container of bikes over and you're like, okay, well, you have like service after sales parts and stuff like that. You got stocking. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, that's a problem. Like, really? Yeah, I've actually experienced that quite a bit when I review bikes because that's a common request. Oh, will you review our bike? And and I've still been doing those. And I've had a couple of interesting experiences recently with review bikes specifically. I won't mention names, but one of them, when it showed up, the battery was dead. The rest of the bike was fine. All I needed was a replacement battery so I could do the review. And I said, hey, we've checked it. I can't do the review yet. The battery's dead. And they said, no problem, we'll send you another battery. You know, a little time went went on and they're like, we don't have a battery, we're just going to send you another bike. That tells me that there's a warehouse stocked full of their bikes somewhere 
But, you know, how hard is it going to be to get replacement parts if they just have to send a whole new bike to get me up and running? You know, I was like, well, I don't need the whole bike, but they physically didn't have a way to do that. They had, you know, like I said, I presume, uh, and I'm 99% sure that's correct, but, you know, they have bikes sitting on a pallet in a warehouse, probably handled by a third party that they don't have any control over, so they can't even tell somebody, go grab this bike, pull a battery out and ship it. It was just grab this box and send it. That was unfortunate to see. And I had another one where a bike had a little problem with a frame. This is another review bike, so not one that I carry, thankfully. But it was a local customer that had it. He had an issue with it. He said, you know, bring it in. We'll take a look at it. We'll coordinate. We'll we'll figure it out. You know, and they, same thing. They had to send basically a whole nother bike to to try and resolve it. And and that's that's always a sign for concern, I think, that you've got somebody just kind of grabbing bikes from somewhere slapping a name on it and reshipping it out and not really knowing what's going into their bike or having the spare parts. Like you said, they just don't have them. It's worrying. <laughs> it's a big issue. It's not easy to do what you do, Pat, like to support the bikes on that level and, and to know that and to like know all the details in them. I mean, I think that, yeah, the industry is growing, but the reality is the people that actually like understand the bikes on a deeper level and like, you know, understand the, inner workings of a controller and different things like that. This is, this is a rare breed. That's funny. I never thought about it that way. The, the way you just said it makes me realize you're right. The number of e-bike companies that understood how e-bikes worked 10 years ago was every e-bike company understood how the e-bikes worked because they were heavily involved in making them or sourcing them or whatever they were doing. They knew how they worked. Now it's probably a very small percentage of e-bike companies that actually know how their bike works. That's kind of a scary thought. Without a doubt. And even shops, it's the same same thing that goes on. And it, it is what it is. I, I mean, it's an evolution of the industry, I guess. But if you think about it, like auto mechanics today, like do they really know how to rebuild an engine or something like that? They know how to plug it into a computer and, and swap a part. But those sort of things, it's, it's changing. So Yeah, it certainly is changing. I think you're right. I never never thought about it quite in that way. I mean, yeah, we, we used to have to dig into some crazy stuff because even if the company has some level of support, a lot of times they just, what ends up happening is like, you know, this push for innovation. It's like innovate, innovate, innovate. But then they don't support like the legacy product. And I think supporting that is so critical, particularly when you have a lot of proprietary parts. Yeah, you mentioned bionics. And I remember that being a big one. If the battery died... You know, you couldn't just throw another six volt battery on their conversion system and right away it had like a proprietary communication system that talked to the controller. And I never worked on one myself because of all the stories I heard on how difficult it was to get it to work again. But my understanding was even the BMS, the circuit inside the battery, if the cells were replaced, there was some sort of reset that had to happen. So even if you replaced the cells in the battery, it still wouldn't work. And it's just like, what's the point of even doing that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess that's the direction things are going to go more and more. It's a challenging thing because then it comes to, becomes a bit like of a liability thing as well, right? And and it gets really tricky. It does seem like in a, there's some to some extent some direction that like it's it's kind of become more required for some of that stuff to be locked down. I mean, uh, so I follow the European market a lot, and one of the things that they have a lot of lockdowns and like the the 
European Union makes a lot of requirements on the motor manufacturers to not allow them to be like unlocked per se. Yeah, and I assume that's how a lot of this Bafang motors are having this new CAN bus system that's really hard to change anything, I think is really being driven hard by the European market. I would imagine so. I mean, the U.S., we kind of don't know what's going on at the moment, and most people don't. But I do think that there will be, as the market grows, there'll be more liability concerns. And and I think companies have to be careful about that and watch out for that. And the batteries, as you brought up, I think that's a really big one. There's been a lot of issues recently in, in New York around that. Uh, actually, several people have died just this past year as well as relation to battery fires. So it's, it's pretty serious. And I think there's a lot of changes that are likely to come. I know that there's a change in the works in New York, actually. It's going to require a certain level of testing on the e-bikes and stuff like that, which Nobody really wants to stifle innovation, but the reality is we also need to be careful that we're not put in a position that the whole industry kind of gets shut down because of, I don't know how it was in other places, but like the hoverboards, like what they call hoverboards, like the two wheels. I remember that whole fiasco with those. I never got into hoverboards, thankfully, but I, I saw that whole thing happen. And so they got largely shut down, right? It's just like, you can't sell them, you can't bring them anywhere, you can't have them on the train. Yeah, it went from like, at one point, the hoverboards, which if you're listening and you're thinking, what is a hoverboard? Like, Back to the Future hasn't happened quite yet. (laughs) Lexus got close with a prototype. Go check that out if you haven't seen it. Anyway, I'm getting distracted. There's these like two-wheeled things. I think the hoverboard is a dumb name. I'll be polite because it doesn't hover. But it's got two wheels. You stand on it and you you ride around on it. You balance on it, kind of like a. It's like a cheap Segway, <laughs> I guess. You know the original Segways. You know that were thousands of dollars, kind of thing. But they were like two hundred bucks, and you could buy them at Walmart. You could literally buy them. I feel like I saw them in like airport malls. Like they were everywhere. But you know, I saw these horror stories where you had like lithium batteries that didn't even have a BMS circuit. So you could overcharge cells, you could discharge cells too far, they wouldn't balance. And yeah, the battery fires just started happening right and left and they just got yanked off of shelves everywhere. It was it was a disaster because I feel like people were just trying to compete to be the cheapest hoverboard. By making the battery cheap, you could make it cheaper than the other guy, you'd sell more, but it's it's not safe. And that's exactly the opposite <laughs> of what we want to happen with e-bikes. We don't want to sacrifice safety whether it's batteries, whether it's frames, it's brakes, any of those things, I feel like, yeah, it's it's a balance. Like you said, you don't want to stifle innovation, but you have to make good products. And sometimes that requires or regulations happen. And I think e-bikes are like the Wild West right now where everybody's trying to figure all of that out. Yeah, without a doubt. It's, it's really going to be interesting to see how that unfolds in the future. But I think you could probably use some other industries as a model and, you know, some of these other experiences and think about it, but just, you got to be careful. That's just trying to, I think sometimes I might go a little bit too much in that direction. It's okay to be cautious and I can totally understand it based on what you've already been through. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I've made a lot of personal sacrifices to kind of make my business work. It would really stink to lose that because somebody was careless or, or you know, unsafe product was, you know, on the market or something like that. Which that reality is, is definitely out there. Now, one thing we haven't talked about, and it, I'm kind of leading into it because you're talking about safety, good quality bikes. I mean, you strike me as the type of person that you're never going to have 
what I would call a cheap bike in your shop. You're going to have a good bike that you know is going to be quality. It's going to last. It's going to, it's just going to be a good overall quality bike that people aren't going to be disappointed with a month or three months or six months down the road because it broke down or something broke or something like that. So I'm curious, what type of bikes are you primarily selling? What brands, what models, what types of things are are working for you? Thanks for basically describing my business. I mean, I think it's, uh, I, I look at it, you know, a couple of different perspectives, but we're primarily focused on like the commuter and cargo space. That's something I'm just personally passionate about and just getting people to change the way that they get around. I think that there's just loads of potential with that. And I think I try to put the product out there in a certain way. And I want to represent e-bikes in a very specific way. I think that they can easily be regarded as toys or cheap junk or whatever. And I think we need to really distance ourselves from that sort of perception because if we want e-bikes to be perceived as a serious transportation solution, it needs to be looked at as a serious machine, not just something that was thrown together. And that's a challenge I'm trying to overcome. I'm also trying to help uh, electric bikes to be perceived as cool, as vain as that sounds. It doesn't. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if people see it and they're like, oh, that's that's awesome. I, I want one of those. It <laughs> that helps you sell it, right? <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't just help me sell it. The thing is, it also helps to start a trend. The reality is like most people follow and most people want to be perceived as cool. So, you know, the products that they purchase, the brands that they associate themselves with, I think is representative of that. And I think that a lot of people think that way. And so I think these are really important factors in, in many people's lives, particularly in America compared to other places. Like I think some places like people could just look at the utility of something and say, Hey, that, that makes sense. I'll do it. But the reality is in a place which is called America where people take one mile trips by car, mostly, you know, mostly by car, other places in the world where electric bikes are more commonplace or bikes are more commonplace, they would say, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, it's a big problem we're trying to tackle. And that's what I'm into. And so that's why I try to focus on a certain type of product and certain, you know, brands, etc. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense why you really resonate with the European brands, because that's very much how they operate in Europe. I mean, you don't, you don't get in your car to drive a mile, you get on a bicycle. And it just Nobody questions that. They just do it. Right. Also thinking about it, if you get in your car, most people, when they get in their car, they're not thinking like, is my car going to start or is it going to break down on the road? Right. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of products that are on the market, that's, that's the experience. And like, I'm sure you've seen it with certain things you've reviewed. I mean, you just yep. shared a couple of instances of that. I've seen them. I know those brands for sure. That It's like, there are review bikes I've had in my shop. We'll put it this way. My commute from home is about 12 miles. It's uphill. There are a lot of review bikes that I wouldn't test by commuting to work on it because I wouldn't be confident that it would make it for one reason or another. You know, there's other brands where I'd say, yeah, I'll do that with that one. No problem. That's a distinction. It's like, you know, and, and people are, feel free to ask me this. You know, you can ask me on the phone if you talk to me. Would you ride this bike from your house to work? <laughs> and there's some that I might say, hmm. No. <laughs> and there's definitely other ones I'd say, yeah, that one, no problem. I would do that all the time. 
Yeah, without it, I mean, that's the sort of stuff that's really important to me. And that's, these are the, like, the little details that I'm focused on because if I'm trying to sell a transportation solution, it needs to have those sort of elements. It's great if it has more power, this and that, but the reality is those fundamentals are, are so critical. It's like, you know, how reliable it is, what's the long-term support look like? I've had just so many horror stories of some of the companies that we have worked with in the past or seen other companies, you know, just came into the shop. We used to repair all sorts of different bikes over the years. And you see how horrible the service after sales is. And you see, nobody could actually depend on this. It's challenging enough just a, a bicycle without an electric system. But to add an electric system to it, it's going to make things more complicated. And increasing that reliability is really critical. We actually, at the moment, we only work with Bosch. It's kind of, there's, I have a whole video on this thing, but, you know, and, and, and I know it's not for everybody, but for my business, for my shop, for the stance that we take, that's, that's the direction that we go. It's unfortunate because there's a lot of really awesome bikes out there, but, you know, for us, like, we just need to be able to do something that, that we can do consistently and really deliver that like, consistent experience. And I, I know I can do it that way. I think your business model works and makes sense in the way that you have it set up. And I totally respect that. And, you know, and there are many other types out there. And I think we could all coexist. And I think there's room for, you know, these different things. But I think that as long as we're just providing value to the end consumer, I think that's really like our, our core, core job. And, you know, somebody asked me recently, who's actually the director of a, of a big brand and said, well, are you concerned in the future with more and more brands going direct to consumer and like where you're going to find yourself as a place, as a retailer and, in, in, you know, in the marketplace? I said, listen, as long as I can continue to deliver value to the customer, I will continue to have an opportunity to receive that value in return in the market. And I'm not concerned about because brands can do all different things. And, you know, we might change the brands that we work with in the future, but I think, you know, I think it's important that we deliver value. And, and that's a good long-term strategy for business. I feel pretty confident in that. You know? Yeah. If that's your focus, then I think the customer is always going to be happy with what they're getting from you. That's, <laughs> that's what's important. And I don't mean that in, in the short term, because you might make somebody happy for a week by selling them a cheap bike, but in six months, they're not going to be happy with it anymore. It's interesting. I, I'm just kind of thinking about how we do business in some ways, very similarly. And in other ways, difference. And I think probably the biggest difference I can put my finger on is the target person. And it's not that I planned it this way. It's just kind of what happened is I feel like the average person going to, and like I said, correct me if I'm wrong, but propel bikes, they are probably going to commute to work or use it in some sort of commuting way. They want it to be completely reliable. Like you said, like a car, they're not thinking, is this going to start? Is the battery going to make it? Like they're just going to hop on it and assume that it's always going to work. Very reliable, you know, just super high quality, willing to give up maybe some of the other things that other e-bike companies are advertising, like a lower price or more power, but knowing that they're getting a higher overall quality of components and reliability because of how they're going to use it. Now, I sell bikes where people are asking for a lot of those same things, but they're usually not commuting to work. I've seen this question posed a lot online, but it's not one that I get too often, which is, you know, people will be like, I want to buy an e-bike. I need to commute to work. 
I can't be late. Like being on time to my job is critical. You know, what are some suggestions? And that changes, I think, your mindset a little bit because I might be like, oh, well, this bike's a ton of fun. If you're going to go just ride it and have fun on it and you don't care as much about the reliability, maybe I could recommend it. I don't really want to sell anything that's unreliable. That would be bad business, <laughs> which is part of the fun for me of reviewing so many different e-bikes from different companies because I can see, oh, here's a bike I would sell. Here's one I wouldn't. You know, I can either reach out to those individual companies or manufacturers. But yeah, I, I definitely see where, where you're coming from. And, uh, and I think Bosch is a great, you know, if you're going to stick to one, I think that's a great choice. I, at the last bike show I went to, out of all the different motor companies that were at that show, Shimano, Bros, Bosch, you know, you name it, all those that are kind of in the same category. Bosch was the one that I was the most interested in. It seemed like they had just little things, but it seems like they, they were really doing some things right that I was that I was impressed with. And it's still not something I carry, but it's something that's, you know, it's on my radar. I'm always watching, you know, what's Bosch doing? What bikes are they going into? Uh, I'm definitely paying attention to it for sure. Yeah, I love what you just said. And I think it's totally in line. It's the same way that I would assess the, the situation. And it's challenging because the reality is, like you said before, you know, like I, you too, probably could make a lot more money in a short period of time selling cheap stuff. Right, but I don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to. And you don't have a public-facing business and a, and a YouTube channel that you're like putting yourself out there in the public for scrutiny and everything like that if you're not going to do something that you're not like, you know, looking to do long-term and like, and actually like stand behind. And so I, I really respect the way that, that you handle it. And I, and I think it's, you know, it's from a, a, a yeah, like it's just a slightly different mindset. And I, and I do think that those different customers do exist. And, and I, and I definitely respect that. And, and for my side, I'm like, you know, some other retailers will say like, Oh, I'm upset because these guys are selling this and they don't understand that it's not different. Like the market's going to demand what the market demands and it's going to go where it goes. And just like, you just got to go with it, stay in your lane, focus on what you want and who you want to work with. Where can you provide the most value? For me, I, as a shop, I don't think that we could do what you do. And I think that's like, for one, I like kudos to you because you're able to support customers in a variety of different aspects. And I really love the idea too, of like reviewing different products beyond just what you sell and that sort of thing. And that's something that we've, uh, I've considered getting into as well, you know, from my side. I mean, I think we're actually moving more and more in the direction of, of making more videos about just like different rider stories overall. It's like the experience people have on the bikes. Well, I think based on the bikes you're selling, most of the companies that would reach out to you for a review, you'd be sorely disappointed <laughs> with what you got because you'd be comparing them to your own bikes and be like, oh, this. I think I've got to wonder, Kyle. Like, <laughs> do you want to talk to a like? Do you have a lawyer on retainer that you're just like, can I say this because I feel like it's going to be hurtful? <laughs> you know, I just say what I'm thinking and I'm just honest about it. I'll tell you this: I've had again. I try to be nice. See, in this case, I won't name the name of the company. Like. Like I had a company reach out for yeah. an e-bike review and they said they had a little contract they wanted me to agree to. And it said in their contract that I would only say nice things about their bike. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not agreeing to that. Like, that's fine that you want that in the contract, but I'm not doing that. If you want me to review the bike, I can say whatever I want to say about the bike, whether it's good or bad, and you have to live with it. 
and I'm pretty straightforward <laughs> about that. They took the wording out of the contract and they sent the bike. Now, thankfully for them, I was pretty pleased with the bike for how it was priced and everything. And that's always something I try to mention. Like, Oh, for sure. For a $1,500 bike, yeah, this one's actually pretty decent. Or this one is just like every other $1,500 bike that's on the market. And I've said that too. I'm like, you know, this bike's fine, but there's nothing that sets it apart from every other direct-to-consumer $1,500 bike. So unless they have it in stock, like there's no motivation to buy this over another brand. And quite a few of the companies have come back to me afterwards and said, you know, thank you for the honest, kind words or whatever I said. We're going to go work on our company and we're going to try and change it or tweak it a little bit. You know, I had one bike that was kind of bad, honestly, and like it wasn't a very good review. They pulled them from their website because they were like, you know what? We went to the factory, went to the warehouses. You're right. It does have that problems. We're going to pull them all back. We're not going to put, put them back on our website until they're fixed. Wow. You know, because it had some concerning problems that I was like, I would, I like, I I'm can't sure you see that. I, I've seen plenty of that. I mean, fortunately, I think that, you know, the consumer is becoming more educated, partly from your videos and different things like that. And yeah, I, I think less of that stuff exists today, but it still exists. And, and so I definitely appreciate what you're doing to help address that. It's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, my, my whole thought is I'm not going to review bikes unless I can just say what I honestly want to say. Cause I, I don't want to be one of those review channels where they just review bikes. And it seems like every review is somewhat positive and it's like, but they can't all be good. That's logically, that's not possible. Every, if, like every bike is your favorite bike. Like, Oh, that's my favorite bike. Like, <laughs> like no, there's something Did you say that about the last one. <laughs> Yeah, there's something wrong here. We we can't be doing that. And that's part of the reason I changed the whole format. And you may not know this, and that's totally fine, to where I don't record the videos anymore for bike reviews. I always do it live. Yeah. It's live. People can ask questions. It's great for interaction. But that way, people know, like, this is what I honestly think. This is how it honestly rides. Like, like I can't hide anything. Like, like if it doesn't work... You're going to see it live. And that's happened once <laughs> where the bike was working before the review. And then I start reviewing it. And I'm like, uh, the bike's not working now. I guess we will work on this and I will come back in another video at a later time. Sorry. <laughs> that's, you know, it is what it is. Wow. That's really smart, Kyle. I, I, I really respect what you're doing. Can I ask you just kind of, well, I guess. You can ask whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. What what made you get into the to doing YouTube? Or I have my assumptions, but... Ooh. All right. I will answer, but then I'll have one last question for you before we wrap up this episode, which is I'm going to ask you the same question. <laughs> that sounds um, good. I'll be ready. That seems fair. I'll give you some time to think about it. I started YouTube videos about e-bikes because when I first started the company... It was just me by myself. Like I said, it, I didn't intend this to be a business. I, yeah. for the first few years, and many people may not know this, the first few years of the e-bike business, I was still working with my dad in another business. So I was working full time for him and all the e-bike stuff was just on the side for fun. And it blew up and I just couldn't keep up with things. It was just so many emails. And, you know, I was staying up super late at night. I was building bikes till 10 o'clock, 1030 at night. And it was just, it wasn't sustainable. 
nobody in their right mind. <laughs> well, there's a few exceptions, but most people <laughs> can't work that many hours, do that many things. I knew that there were certain questions that I was getting all the time, the same question over and over and over. And the website wasn't answering the question. And I was like, you know what? When I get these really common questions, I'm going to go make a video and just answer those basic questions. And one of the early videos that I did was 10 things to know before buying an e-bike, which still to this day is a common thing. Like, well, people are brand new to bikes. They don't know what to ask. And that video did really well. I don't know. It's, you know, for my channel anyway, I'm not a massive YouTube channel like some, but you know, I think it's getting close to 2 million views on a single video, but it's not like it got a spike of views on all at once and then dropped. It's just been consistent views every single month, all the time since it was released. And so what happened was, to answer your question, I started YouTube videos thinking that if I made a video to answer questions, I would get less emails. (laughs) And that didn't happen whatsoever. The opposite happened. More people watched the videos. I got more emails. They were just different questions than the questions before. And that's why the videos, you know, obviously there's some times when I'm like, hey, I got this new bike that, you know, we put all this effort into. Yeah, I want to show it to you and and I want to show it off and you can buy it from us. But that's why more or most of the videos are not selling a product. They're not like that. They're explaining a topic. They're explaining e-bike laws or classes or how to repair something on your e-bike because I realized early on, like, people are just too new to e-bikes. E-bikes are too new. And it's going to be that way for several more years to come, at least. I just need to get information out there and help people understand these. And that's how the channel started. And that's basically why it still continues. I'm still just trying to answer (laughs) all the questions that are out there about e-bikes. And I can't possibly answer them all. But I'm doing my best to keep it fun, keep it entertaining, but always hope that people learn something. But that's why it honestly started. And then obviously it has just shifted and changed a lot over the last few years. I love it. It's so simple, but it's it's pretty profound though. I And I really respect you sticking with it and just going with it. That's really awesome. All right. Now it's your turn. <laughs> okay. My turn. My turn. So basically I have been doing a good amount of videos with Court from Electric Bike Review. Okay. And I was really enjoying that. I just felt like there was more that I wanted to tell and, and show uh, in, in a similar way. Maybe more questions I wanted to, to answer or more just I was traveling to to Europe and visiting these companies and going to Eurobike and this and that. I was like, this stuff is so interesting. Like people have no idea what's going on here. I'm like, I, I want to be able to show this stuff. Now, when you say you were doing videos early on, was that like the bike reviews or was that just kind of varied, depends on what it was? You know, so I did, I used to, used to help Court with the bike reviews. Like he would review a lot of the different bikes that I had in my shop. A lot of times I'd have bikes that nobody else had. But yeah, when I started, we actually started the YouTube channel in the summer of 2019. And it was effectively started at Eurobike in Germany. So I, I hired a full-time videographer and I was just like, I'm just going at this hard and, and we just want to try to elevate this experience so we just went into it and then you know crazy enough covid started not long after and it it turned out that it was 
we had a good foundation at that time. And I'm, I'm really grateful that we, you know, put some network in and, you know, we just kind of continue to stick with it and try to continue to bring new experiences to YouTube. I think like you're doing your thing and it's awesome. And I'm trying to like complement that and not necessarily compete with that or compete with what the other, other YouTubers are doing. If you want to call us that. Um, I guess I can ask this question. I mean, like how much time you actually spend a week working on videos? I mean, because if it's anything more than a few hours, I think that qualifies. Yeah, I would say so. It's definitely a good part of my business. And it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people might look at me like I'm crazy, you know, spending all this time making YouTube videos when I got a, a company run with several locations, etc. But I think that this is the area that I can provide a lot of value to my company, to my customers, potential customers, employees, etc. And as such, uh, you know, I'm going to focus on that. And we're still kind of figuring out some of the flow of certain things. And, you know, that takes time and maybe it'll be a lifelong thing. I don't know, but I'm enjoying it. If I could ask one follow-up question, are, are you enjoying it? Oh, definitely. I think no matter what I was doing, I would probably be making videos about it yeah. because it is just fun. I feel like there's this whole creative side that I have that, gets uh, some satisfaction out of being able to go come up with an idea. All right, we're going to film something like this. We're going to try and tell the story. We're going to try and do this, the whole editing process. And unfortunately, that's what also makes it hard to let go of some of those things. So I'm usually the one doing the filming. I'm basically always doing all of the editing because it's hard for me to let it go because I feel like, well, no, if I let somebody else edit it, and, and I know this isn't 100% true, but it's going to come out slightly different than the way I envisioned it or would like it to be portrayed. And that's just kind of the artistic side. But yes, I definitely have fun with it. And I assume you're having fun with it as well. Otherwise, you wouldn't you wouldn't be doing that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I got to commend you for doing all that stuff on your own, too, because that's definitely beyond my skill set. I'm, I, you know, <laughs> I've tried to do some of that stuff on my own. And From what I have watched, your video quality always looks excellent. So you're doing a good job with it. The camera footage, everything looks great. Tara, my videographer, she, she, you can give her credit for that one for sure. I'm just a pretty face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, I look at it this way too. I mean, I'm looking at your channel right now on my phone while I'm talking to you. You know, I see seven days ago, why cities are better with cargo bikes. I mean, that just paints the perfect picture from everything you've described to me about your business and the way you're trying to pitch to people and find customers. Uh, but, you know, it's got 18,000 views on it from a week ago, and those views will continue coming. But I feel like so many people I've heard say this, but where could you possibly go and stand in front of a crowd of 18,000 people and tell them about cargo bikes? You can't. That's impossible to do anywhere but on a platform like YouTube or some other social media where you can reach that number of people and talk to them about that sort of thing. It just makes sense. So Yeah, without a doubt. Finding your tribe, right? Um, right. And helping to create one. That's good. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's been, uh, been a pleasure talking to you. I'm sure we'll probably chat more in the future at some point. Before I let everyone go, if they're interested in cargo bikes, commuter bikes, Bosch motors, all the types of things that you are interested in and you sell, uh, where should they go check out your business, what you're doing? 
Oh, yeah, thanks, Kyle. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. Probably best just check out our website, propelbikes.com, or check us out on YouTube, just under Propel. And, uh, yeah, as I said, we got a shop in Brooklyn, Long Beach, California, and, and now uh, coming in Delaware. So, yeah, re- really uh, appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's been awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you've been through a lot <laughs> over the last 10 years, getting your business to where it is. I can tell from all the things you've done legal and otherwise, it sounds like it's been, been a, an interesting and, and wild ride, pun intended. Oh, no, it's, it's been a blast. And, uh, you know, that's what they say. You got you to gotta do something you're passionate about because it's definitely going to be challenging, but it's, it's been all worth it for sure. And thank uh, everybody for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, and learned something from it. I feel like I learned something every single time I interview somebody from another e-bike company. I know it seems a little bit crazy to review other people's bikes, to talk to other e-bike companies, but I think that's what we all should be doing so that way we're making and producing the best bikes we possibly can for you. Because I don't know, talking to you, whoever's listening, what sort of bike you want, but certainly you're going to tell me at some point, or you're going to tell somebody like Chris, what you want and and hopefully we can help provide that for you. Make sure to go to ebikepodcast.com if you haven't already sign up for our newsletter so you get emails when new episodes come out and I will talk to you on another Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>